0: Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this prophecy from Isaiah given so many years ago. Lord, it was given in a particular time, in a particular context and Lord, you really used Isaiah to bring people to yourself. But Lord, we thank you that his words are not contained for one time and do not have application for times after him and for people who have come since he, he long passed away. And we thank you that... His words still even apply to us in our generation. Lord, we pray for your help this morning that we may be able to understand what Isaiah said and that we may be able to hear from your word what it is that we need to do. May you use Isaiah today to speak to us and may we be transformed and changed and become more and more like your son Jesus Christ through hearing the words of you through the prophet Isaiah. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I like lots of movies, but uh, some movies uh, are more enjoyable than others. And one type of movie that really interests me is those with, that have a, a really good court scene. That most of the movie is set in the court, and so you see the judge, you see the lawyers making their cases, and um, trying to get everything together. Uh, John Grisham um, usually has... uh, He's the novelist, but then they're made into movies. They're they're generally fairly good as well. What I think attracts us to court movies, uh, movies about courtroom and and there's even TV shows. I've never watched those, but there are TV shows that focus on just the, the courtroom itself. What I think attracts us to those is because we do have in our hearts a sense of a love for justice, Those movies that are particularly appealing that involve courts are where you really know that the person is guilty and the whole movie may be about them trying to get off and then at the end when you see them condemned as guilty there is a great sense of uh, relief and justice in your heart and you enjoy that, seeing justice performed in the courtroom. So I think most of us are attracted to those kinds of movies. Uh, where we see the courtroom and we see justice performed there. And Isaiah has a a courtroom scene for us here this morning. I've finished my series on the Sermon on the Mount and now I thought I'd spend some time in Isaiah. I'm not sure how much time I will spend in Isaiah, but uh, we're starting at the very beginning and uh, we'll see where we go after this. But this week we're starting in chapter 1 and we're starting with just the first nine verses. And Isaiah opens his prophecy in chapter 1 with a court scene. He opens it with a court scene. And so we see God sitting in court. Who, who, is, the, who is God in this court scene? Well, it's not uh, given to us in the text, but we can, uh, we can work this out for ourselves. God, of course, is the judge. Throughout the Bible, he is said to be the judge. And so he is the judge that is uh, sitting over, presiding over the court. He is your honour in the court scene here. And he's also the prosecutor. He's going through and making a case here. So he's the the lawyer that is prosecuting uh, the criminal that is present. He's also, we know from other parts of scripture, he is the, the jury who makes the decision as to what is um, what is the verdict, and he's also the executioner. So God fulfils a number of roles here in this court scene. Here's the the prosecutor, the judge, the jury, and the executioner. Is there a case left? For, is there a position left for anyone else in this courtroom scene? Well, there's witnesses in court. There are generally witnesses. They aren't closed courts you have witnesses to come in and observe justice happening. And that's what we do with movies, isn't it? We, we sit there and we're observing uh, the courtroom scene and we're observing justice uh, being met. And so who are the witnesses? Well, this is given to us in the text. Uh, we see it in verse 2. Who are the witnesses? Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. The heavens and the earth are called as witnesses to this courtroom scene that God is presiding over. They're called as witnesses. So it's not just a little part of the earth that God has power over. It is all the earth and all the universe, all the heavens are there to see justice met out, to observe that God is righteous in what is going to take place. So who's left then? We've got witnesses, we've got a judge, we've got a jury, we've got an executioner, we've got a prosecutor. Oh, we've got the, the, the person who is accused, the criminal, still to position to be filled. And who is that? Who are the ones who are going to be condemned? Well, that's the people of Israel. It says, verse 2 of Isaiah uh, chapter 1, Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken, the prosecutor has spoken, I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. He's reared up children. And this, of course, is the Israelites, the the people of Israel. They're the people who are being prosecuted. And the crime that they're being charged with, what is that? Verse 2, they have rebelled against me. They have rebelled. That is their crime that God is prosecuting them with and that he is going to judge them with why is it so terrible that they've rebelled against God? Why is it worth having a court scene? Why is it worth calling the heavens and the earth to listen to this courtroom scene? Why is it so bad that these people have rebelled, that the Israelites have rebelled against God? Well, God tells us in uh, the following verses why it is so terrible that these people have rebelled against God. Why is it so terrible And that's my first main point this morning. The Israelite rebellion against God is terrible. It is terrible. It is a ghastly crime that they have committed. So the first main point, the Israelite rebellion against God is terrible. Why? Well, I've got six reasons coming from verses 2 to 9. Six reasons why it is so terrible. First, it is a terrible crime that they have committed in rebelling against God because they're his children. Verse 2, Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. They're not just any rebels. These are rebels against God the Father, the one who cared for them. It says he reared them. The word rear there can mean sort of an adoption, that he's taken them in as his own. They're his own children. He reared them and that's what we see with Israel. They are adopted out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery and become his people. He takes them to himself and then he just doesn't take them to himself. He actually continues to sustain them. It's not like he drags them out into the desert and then doesn't feed them, doesn't sustain them, doesn't do anything and leaves them to die in the desert. No, he cares for them as his children in the desert. He continues to look after them. And what do they do? They rebel against him. That's why this is so terrible. It's not an ordinary rebellion. It's a rebellion within a household against loving parents. And that shouldn't take place. Many parents aren't caring for their children and so it makes sense that their children would rebel against them. But for a loving, kind, caring parent to have a child rebel against them is a terrible crime. It is a terrible thing that they are doing. That's the first reason why it's so terrible. second reason it's terrible is because animals know better. Verse 3. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. The ox knows who it belongs to. The donkey knows his owner's manger. It knows where it gets fed and it goes back. And this shows how terrible it is that the people of Israel sin against God, they rebel against him. Animals know better. They know who looks after them and they respond accordingly. But here the people of God are worse than an ox and a donkey. And it's interesting that Isaiah doesn't pick a lion here or a horse as his example, a courageous lion or an intelligent horse. He picks dumb, stupid, stubborn animals as his examples to compare the Israelites to. And what he is saying is that the Israelites are are worse, are more stupid than an ox and a donkey. They know better. But the Israelites who have an intelligent mind, they know many things, they have understanding, they do not know God and they do not understand him. This is a terrible crime because even animals know better. Third, this is terrible because they're not just guilty, they are very guilty. This is why it's so terrible that they've rebelled against God. They are very guilty against him. Verse 3, it says, Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Is it only a few people in this nation that have rebelled against God? And God is bringing the whole people to, to justice when only a few have sinned? Kind of like in school where they used to, one child stole something and the teacher would keep everyone back after class. That's the only kind of detention I had in school. I never got detention personally. But I was outraged when I was in detention because someone in the class had sinned and we were all being punished. Is that what God is doing here? No, it's a sinful nation. Everyone has sinned against God. They are all sinners. It's not just a few. And they're not just one sin. It's not like everyone in the nation just committed one sin. They've committed many sins. It says, a people loaded with guilt. They are loaded with guilt. They're heavy with guilt. They've committed many sins against God. And they haven't just committed many little sins, they've committed evil sins. Verse 4, a brood of evildoers. They've committed terrible sins. They've committed evil sins. Now all sin is equally sinful in the eyes of God that he does um, you're counted a sinner as soon as you commit one sin. But there is a sense that some sins are more harmful than others, and so they are greater. And that's what the Israelites were doing here. They're committing great evil, and they've forsaken the Lord of the Lord. They don't seek Him at all. And if they stumble across Him, if God sends a prophet to them, and they're forced to suddenly hear about God, what do they do? First, 4, they have spurned the Holy One of Israel. They spurn him. They, they go in the other direction. They leave. They, God comes to them. They don't actively seek God. But when God comes in his mercy to them, they run in the other direction. And they turn their backs on him. They're not interested in God at all. They turn their backs completely on him. And this is terrible because this is the Holy One of Israel that they're turning their backs on. It's not like... It's an enemy that's come to them and they're leaving. Someone that's going to hurt them and harm them that they're leaving and running away from. It's a holy God, a good God who has come to them and so they're rejecting him and that makes their sin so terrible. It means they're terribly guilty before him. Why else are they terrible in their sin? Well, four, terrible because... Their sin is so terrible because they have been personally punished and still not responded. Punishment... Good discipline is a good thing. We don't discipline children because we want to inflict pain upon them and we, we, we take an interest in that and we really like doing that. No, we're trying to help the child to better itself. We're disciplining them to help them. And so last night I think I came across my first act of discipline on Joshua. He started to crawl around the house and last night he crawled over to the VCR and the DVD player. And he put his hand up and I said, No. no. And he looked around and he looked back at the VCR, put his hand up, No. no. he looked around. What's going on? And he put up his hand again and I said really deeply, No. And he turned and he burst into tears. It was it a was heartbreaking moment. I hadn't, and Jill said it was like I really did smack him. Um, It it was that kind of tears. But all I did was say no in a deep voice. And so then I I went over to him and said, look, I I still love you Joshua and I comforted him and I said you can touch many things in this house but that you're not supposed to touch. I'm doing this for your good and for the household's good that I'm disciplining you in this way. It's for your good that I'm doing this. And so he, he cried a bit and he was comforted and then later on he crawled back over and I said no once and then he turned and went off to something else. So it actually started to work, I think. We'll see how long that lasts. But, um. but discipline is a good thing. It's meant to bring you back onto the right path. It's not a bad thing when it's done in love. And that's what God has done to these people and they still don't respond. That's why their crime is so terrible. They have been disciplined for it and they still haven't responded and that's given to us in verse 5 and 6, that they have been disciplined. God says, why should you be beaten any more? I have beaten you, why should I beat you further? Why do you persist in rebellion? And he's, it's not like he disciplined them once and then that's it. He's given them repeated discipline again and again. He's been a loving father and has disciplined and disciplined and disciplined and disciplined, but they still don't respond. And we know that he's disciplined them again and again because of the description that he gives. He says your whole head is injured in verse 5. Your whole heart is afflicted. Your head is injured, the outside of you is injured and then your heart is injured, your inner self. You've got pain inside, you've got pain outside. And then is it only the head and the heart that have been afflicted? No, he says, verse 6, from the sole of your foot to the top of your head there is no soundness. He's beaten them in every part of their body that he can possibly beat them in. And they're still rebelling. And it's not like these are uh, punishments that have been inflicted in the distant past and people have sort of forgotten. Like I expect Joshua, he'll forget that I'm going to discipline him by saying no when he goes near the VCR. He'll forget. And so it will have to happen again and again. This is recent discipline that God has done upon them. How do we know this? Only wounds and welts and open sores. This is recent discipline and they're not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. He has recently disciplined them and they still aren't coming back to God. They're still persisting in their rebellion. This is terrible what they're doing rebelling against God. He's been loving to them, disciplined them as much as he possibly can and he has done it recently. He's showed his loving hand of discipline and they still have not responded, even though they've been personally disciplined. And then lastly, second lastly, number five, it's also terrible because as a nation, they have been disciplined and punished and still not responded. It's not like he's just punished them individually. He's punished them as a nation, and that's given to us in verse 7. Your country is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a field of melons, like a city under siege. The whole country has been disciplined. It's not like just a couple of individuals have been disciplined from top to bottom. No, it's the whole country. The whole country is desolate, says there in verse 7. Your cities burned with fire. The places that they live have been burned with fire. They don't have anywhere to go. But maybe they don't have anywhere to live, but they've still got a steady income. They've still got food coming. No. Their cities have been burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. They've lost their houses and they've lost their food. They've lost their sustenance. They've lost their their income that's going to sustain them. They're completely being punished here and they're still not responding so what it means then, if they've been punished in that way, it says, verse 8, the daughter of Zion is like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a field of melons. They're like this little shanty that you set up uh, that they were known to do in Israel. When you were at harvest time, you would set up a little lean-to, a little, um, little hut, where you, you didn't want to walk home from the fields every day while you're harvesting because it was a long walk back home. So you just set up this kind of little shack that barely took, you know, one, one person, just covered you temporarily and fell down pretty easily. That's what the city of Israel has become like. They've become like a hut, a little shelter in a vineyard and a hut in a field of melons. And they've become also like a city under siege. A city that is under siege is where the city is cut off, there's soldiers all around it and no one goes in and no one comes out. And so you think, oh, well, maybe... Their their fields have been destroyed but they're going to get some food and and what they need from another source. No, this country has been absolutely disciplined. There is no way of them even getting outside help to them. They're completely cut off. They're completely punished. This is a terrible thing that they're doing in persisting in rebellion after they've been personally punished and after their country has been punished to try and get them to return. And then the last reason we know it's so terrible is because they're described as like Sodom and Gomorrah. We see it in verse 9. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become, we would have been like Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah are those cities in the Old Testament that are infamous, that are wicked, and so wicked that God rained down burning sulphur upon them and completely destroyed them. Everyone acknowledges in Israel that Sodom and Gomorrah are wicked cities and here Isaiah is pulling out all the stops and saying you are behaving so badly that you should be like Sodom and Gomorrah. You should have sulphur rain down from heaven and obliterate you. Is this only Israel that's being described here? Is there no meaning for anyone except Israel in the time of Isaiah? Well that brings me to my second main point This rebellion, this terrible rebellion, is still happening today. Everyone is still reared and sustained by God as it describes there in verse 2. I reared children and brought them up. Everyone in this world has been created by God and every day that you eat, it is part of God's grace to you that you are sustained by him, that you are cared for by him. And so when you don't respond to God... You are behaving worse than animals. People are still doing this today. They are being dumber than an ox and a donkey. Ox and donkeys no better than the intelligent people today who do not respond. And we love to boast about our intelligence, particularly in this day and age, where people have gone to outer space with the intelligence of man, where they have plunged into the oceans and explored where they have uh, gone all over the the world and explored parts of it that were previously um, unknown and where we even go deep and look at things under a microscope, things that can't be seen with the human eye, with the intelligence that we have, we are able to do these things. But people may be able to do those things, but really they are worse than a donkey. They are worse than an ox. They don't have the brains of a donkey, let alone the brains of a human being and what they should be doing. They should be returning to God. And everyone is terribly sinful. It says, our sinful nation. That can be described of every nation in the world. Every nation is full of sinners. People loaded with guilt. There's not anyone in this room, let alone in the world, who has only sinned once. Everyone has sinned again and again. We do evil things. You just read the papers and you see the evil things, the the things that people have invented to do, how they can do more and more evil than ever before. And you just read some of history of the last century and the evil things that people do and you know that there are countries of evildoers around. Everyone forsakes the Lord they spurn the Holy One of Israel. When the Gospel comes along, when Jesus is spoken of, they spurn him. They turn their backs upon him. And then everyone has also been beaten for their sins. When we start in this world, we, Im- we immediately start feeling pain. We start feeling suffering. As a baby, you start straight away it's not like you, you, you start off okay and then, then you experience pain later on. We all experience the consequence of sin in this world. We experience some pain and suffering. Some of us more than others, but we all know what it is to feel pain in our hearts, in our heads. know what it is to feel pain throughout our bodies and we all know what it is to feel the pain of a nation as well. That still happens today where countries are... Ravished, where countries are desolate, where they're hurt. In our own country we've been experiencing a drought for many years in New South Wales and that's part of the consequences of sin. It's not meant to be that way. It's meant to be like the Garden of Eden where you don't really have to work the, the ground in the way that we do now and where we have to be dependent upon the showers of rain. The country is still feeling the consequences of sin but do people repent and return to God? When we have a drought in this land does everyone suddenly say what are we doing? We need to pray to God. No, we build a desalination plant so that we can get water that way. We use our intelligence from our own minds rather than turning to the Lord in repentance and faith as we should. This still happens today. Everywhere is like Sodom and Gomorrah. People loaded with guilt that deserve to have sulfur raining down and obliterating us. We are all sinners. So is there any hope? Is there any hope at all? We're all sinners. Is there hope? Well, there is. There is hope. That's my third point. There is hope. And it's there in the passage. Did you see it? Verse 9. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors. That word unless, there in the Hebrew, it's so good. It shows that there's hope. God Almighty leaves some survivors. We should have been like Sodom and Gomorrah but he left some survivors. He left some survivors there in Israel and he leaves survivors here today. Why does God spare people? Why does he not obliterate them? Well, it's because he wants them to stop rebelling. He wants them to repent of their sins. Trust in God instead of rebelling, instead of spurning him as they have been doing. And that's what God is doing today. He didn't just do it with Israel, he does it right now. The fact that you are sitting in pews here in front of me this morning is because you're a remnant that God has preserved. He has left survivors here and he is leaving you with the opportunity to turn from your sins, to repent of them and to stop rebelling, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all you have to do, repent and believe. Now that seems a bit too easy. Surely you've done some bad things in your life and so really you should be punished to some extent. Maybe not as graphically as it is here. Maybe your country shouldn't be ravished and your whole body covered with sores so you're one big wound. No, but you should be punished somewhat. But no, repentance and faith is possible because the punishment has been met. God does require pain. He does require punishment because he's a just God. He can't let sin go unpunished. And so that's what he did with Jesus Christ. He made sure the punishment was met in Jesus. So when you believe in God, you believe in Jesus and his death for you because what happened to Jesus on the cross was really what we see described here. His whole head was injured. His whole heart was afflicted, says there in verse 5. God's, Jesus going to the cross it really grieved him in his heart to go. He was upset about going to the cross and he did that for people so that they would be spared. From the sole of his foot to the top of his head There was no soundness. He became sin and was beaten and crucified. Only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil, he took that punishment for you if you repent and believe. He became what is described there on the cross. He became what is described there in verse 4. A sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt. He was loaded up with the sins of people so that they could survive. So that they could repent and believe and have life. His country was desolate. If you take his country to be himself, he is desolate. He was was stripped by foreigners. It says their fields are being stripped by foreigners. His clothing was taken from him. They were gambling for it. Foreigners, Romans, were gambling for his clothing right before him. As it says there, right before them, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. He was left like a shelter in a vineyard. There was just a a shell of him left there on the cross as God turned away from him so that the punishment that should be yours was put upon him. So don't be like these Israelites. Don't continue rebelling against him, against the Holy One of Israel. Instead, turn, seek him, repent, Believe. Have you more understanding, more knowledge than an ox or a donkey? Are you using that brain God has given you to examine his word, to trust and believe in Jesus Christ? Why should you be beaten anymore? If you aren't beaten in this life, you will be beaten in the next life for your sins. God only leaves a remnant for a time. That's what hell is. It is continual punishment again and again for eternity. Don't let that happen. Why should you be beaten anymore? Repent and believe. Let us speak with our God now. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are such a loving God even to terrible sinners like us. Lord, you have brought us into this world, you created us, you sustained us, you blessed us in so many ways, you even disciplined us, you make pain and suffering in this world so that we can be brought back to you to realise that this is not the way it should be, but we should return to you in repentance and faith. Lord, we pray that everyone in this room has done so. We pray that we may trust that the Lord Jesus Christ became the one that was beaten for our sins, that he was loaded with our guilt so that we could go free. Lord, we thank you that in your mercy you sent the Lord Jesus Christ to do that for us. We pray that people that we speak to about this good news, our friends and family who do not know you, the people that we work with, Lord, may they not spurn you. May we be able to share with them the good news of Jesus Christ, that they can have eternal life and not be beaten anymore. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.